0: Sports Talk Mississippi, Ah. on your radio and in the game, right here on Super Talk Mississippi.
1: Ah.
2: Getting close to the weekend, Thursday afternoon edition of Sports Talk Mississippi, streaming online at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borkey, Brian Scott Rippey on this Thursday. Brian Haydad is on the road to Omaha, Nebraska. I know that because I've seen it via Periscope. I've seen him Periscope that he was changing out rental cars to get a larger one. Uh, saw them talking about lunch plans. Saw them uh, videoing or Periscoping the car in front of them on the interstate. And most recently eating a snack in the parking lot of a gas station in Missouri in a town they didn't even know where they were. Hard-hitting stuff from hey Dad and uh, and Joel from Thunder and Lightning, the podcast, as uh, as they make their way to Omaha. We'll check in with hey Dad a little bit later this afternoon. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online at mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing needs, Mississippi Land Bank can help. They've been financing and refinancing land and all that goes with it for over 100 years. You can find their website online at mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. Hey Borky, how's your Thursday?
1: There you go. Thursday's good, although this is the dumbest victory song in sports.
2: Yeah, it's catchy. And I like that the uh, song is catchy, but it's not like something that you can like jam to. Right? It's Not like when Auburn had "All I Do Is Win," or other ones. You, you disagreeing, Rippy?
3: Well, at first I didn't like it at all, and then like the more I listened, it kind of grown on me. But you can't tell me if you have like five or six beers in your stomach and like some team that you are emotionally attached to, just one something of consequence, that this probably wouldn't get you up.
1: I love it. No, I, I love,
2: I, like, I don't dislike the song, and I, the, the sentiment's good with it. It's just like the words. It's like, I mean, you got to get to the chorus to really sing along.
3: I don't know. There are songs with dumber lyrics that have sparked better traditions.
2: I suppose. I suppose you're right. Congratulations. I, I tweeted this about midnight last night. To my friend Glenn Waddell. Uh, you, you you recognize Glenn's voice, even if you don't know his face, or you wouldn't recognize him in public. He is the longtime public address announcer at, uh, at football and baseball for Ole Miss and works the high school state championship events, uh, has done that for a whole bunch of years. He's the biggest St. Louis Blues fan that I know. Like, year-round wears a St. Louis Blues baseball cap, yeah fleece pullover. it's got a blues logo on it. I'm sure he's got a hockey sweater a St. Louis Blues hockey sweater. And my guess is that Glenn had himself a large time watching game seven of the Stanley Cup Finals last night. By the way, Borky, weren't weren't all of you guys wrong on picking uh, Boston to win it?
1: Yeah, you thought I mean, you thought when St. Louis didn't win game six that there's no way they were going to Boston and winning game seven, but hey, I had no rooting interest whatsoever. But it's always nice to see a team from Boston lose.
3: (laughs) I'll drink to that. I just figured, like, mine wasn't even the whole losing Game 6 thing, because as you can kind of see in hockey... They got blown out in Game 6. Like Home ice doesn't matter at all. Each team in the series won one home game apiece. But, like, just the whole, like, newspaper gaffe, Big Poppy having a message, like, before the game, and just all the, like, conditions that are... Well, you call it superstitions, karma, whatever. Seemed to line up in Boston's favor.
2: Yeah, it was what, two zip after the uh, after the first period, they end up winning 4-1. to one. Boston scored an inconsequential goal with about 3 minutes to play. It was kind of cool or, or kind of interesting watching the bench for St. Louis. I mean, they they weren't counting down the minutes. They were counting the seconds, maybe even the milliseconds, hoping that things did not go awry. Um Boston played the last, oh, at least five minutes of the game with an empty net. So, you know, a little bit of an advantage. And um
3: it's a pretty cool win. I mean, this is a team that was in dead last place. And then swapped in a rookie goaltender and just kind of took off. Yeah. That guy's performance last night, what, Bennington is his name? Yeah, he was really good. No, nothing about hockey, but like Nor do I, I, I could tell he was on one last night. Yeah. It was pretty cool. He was on a bit of a bender. Nice. Yeah.
2: Uh, so really good, and I, I will say one thing, Borky, about hockey. Their, uh, their post-game stuff, when you win it all, is pretty cool.
1: Except for when NBC can't find their way to the dump button. I could not believe it. I'm not offended by foul language. I've got kind of a potty mouth myself, to tell you the truth. But the fact that, the, that F-bomb after F-bomb, every player... There were a
2: bunch of them. ...that
1: grabbed the cup and held it up in the air said, Yeah. And every single one made it out over television. You'd think after the first five, they'd be able to like be ready for it, but they just kept flying. They they issued some kind of apology today for it.
3: They also show great like I've I've watched this for a couple years now. Hockey players also show like great restraint in the sense that they all carry that thing over their head when they skate around the ice. Yeah, and like they don't do anything with it. Like, if that were, like, the Patriots or whatever. And then
2: they make a little loop, and then they hand it off to the next guy.
3: Well, if that were, like, Gronk, he's definitely spiking that or throwing it through the glass when (laughs) it's in that position, 100%. And they just don't do anything. They keep it over their head and hand it off to the next guy. That would take some restraint.
1: dented their most recent trophy?
3: Yeah. He used it
1: like a baseball bat. Somebody threw him a baseball, and he used the trophy and hit the ball. (laughs) Well, now, now
2: in fairness, the the on-the-ice celebration with the cup is pretty respectful. What they do with the cup... Once they each get their own little turn with it, don't they? Like each player gets to keep the cup for a couple of days during the off season, drink various things out of it, take pictures with it. They're talking about one player that had triplets. So it'd be interested to see what the picture. You know, they put all three triplets in the cup
3: on top of the trophy.
1: Alexander yeah. Ovechkin slept with his every day that he had it, like literally whatever, whatever in the bed works with him. For you.
3: I don't know if this is an NBC thing or just the state of pretty much all hockey players, but whenever there's a celebration, the first guy that's panned to always has like two or three teeth missing and some gigantic grin. <laughs>
2: I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um So Jane, I, I had this on lying in the bed last night. She was trying to go to sleep. She goes, "What are you watching?" I was like, yeah, "It's Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Finals." I don't care anything about hockey, but you know, Game Seven, somebody's going to win. The celebration's always kind of cool to watch. So I, I watched it, and she goes, "Like these are professional." Like, like, they get paid, right? I said, yeah. She's like, a lot. I was like, well, some of them get paid a lot. She's like, surely they've got the money to get their teeth fixed, because
1: it felt like everybody on St. Louis's team had a tooth missing. They wait until they retire, because I mean, if you get your tooth fixed in the off season, chances are you're just going to get it knocked out
3: again. Why would they wear mouth guards? They do because they're but- hockey players. They take pucks to the face. What that that guy in Boston had a broken jaw.
2: Is that why he had the whatever? Yeah, the just full... slapped
3: slapped a mask on. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you just? Why wouldn't everybody wear a mask to avoid losing teeth? Why would you not sit out if you had a broken jaw? Well, because you're trying to win it all. There's zero other sport on earth.
2: That Look, was... Kevin Durant played with um, you know, just back from an injury.
3: Yeah, definitely same thing. He, he apples, it. apples.
1: Sometimes you put your body on the line in big moments because you're trying to win. Hockey players might be the toughest guys in sports, not even just because like they play with broken jaws, but as you're saying, they don't they don't wear masks. I mean, some guys have visors on and that's it. And they will just lay their body on the ice and let somebody shoot a puck directly at them. 100 miles an hour, that rubber puck is the hardest ball imaginable. And they just lay down. Just as long as it doesn't go in the goal, I don't care if it hits me face unprotected or not, doesn't matter. Those dudes are tough.
3: Yeah, and from what I've gathered, like the visor is not even a protective thing; it's more so with like vision and ice coming up and all that. Like yeah. that thing's probably not stopping a puck. Those dudes are ruthless.
2: We got a bunch to get to with you this afternoon. We will check in with Brian Haydad on the road to Omaha. Ryan Brown from Jocks in Birmingham joins us in the five o'clock hour. We're also going to take a look at the Atlanta Braves, who are red hot and about to get even better with the addition of Dallas Keuchel. Ben Ingram will join us from the Atlanta Braves radio network. Uh, Ken Rosenthal pins uh, an interesting column in which he advocates for the deadening of the baseball in the big leagues. Is this a hot take, or is this something that makes a uh, little bit of uh, of sense? You've heard about Operation Varsity Blues. Uh, no, we're not talking about the uh, the football movie with James Vanderbeek and uh, the whipped cream bikini. We are talking about the. Uh, pay-for-play scandal like you can uh, pay to get your kids into a school so that they can be fake uh, members of the crew team so that they can get into an elite Ivy League school or Stanford or somewhere like that. First round of sentencing came down, and it was uh, probably not what the prosecution was hoping for. U.S. Open is underway at Pebble Beach and currently in the lead with a first-round 66, which is one off of the uh, major championship record at Pebble Beach. Ricky Fowler, 5-under. He's one shot clear. Scott Pier- uh, Piercy and Louis Oustazen. take a full look at the reader- leaderboard coming up as well. And uh, some big names going off in the uh, next 45 minutes or so. A lot to get to with you this afternoon. C Spire text line is open. 601-879-4395. 601-879-4395. C Spire, Customer inspired. More coming up after this in the Renaissance Bank Studio. Renaissance Bank understanding you. Again, the C Spire text line is open to you. 601 879 4395. 601 879 4395. C Spire Customer Inspired. Glad to. Um Glad to have you along for the ride this afternoon. Zach in Oxford says, uh, man, Richard, hearing about them, talking about Mississippi State going to Omaha, makes me really, really wish you were going too. Big congratulations to Mississippi State and their fan base. Yeah, College World Series is a blast.
3: Um, Rippy, did you go in 2014 when Ole Miss went? Did not. Was not working then. Yeah. I was an insurance major. Were you? Real exciting.
2: You uh, glad you made a change? (laughs) Talk to me in a decade. So, it's one of those things where it's a little bit of a slow start, but uh, those guys tend to do pretty well in the long run.
3: Yeah, I, uh, I do nothing about insurance. One of those where you get to be like a sophomore, you got to pick a major. Yeah. Sounds responsible.
2: Your parents were proud of you then, right? Yes. Less proud
3: now? I don't know. You haven't asked lately? I checked in a while. <laughs>
2: don't really know want to know the answer to that. Borky, did you make the trip in 2014 to Omaha? I did not. I was actually interviewing for this job. Ah. I'm surprised that... Uh, yeah, that's like post-graduation. That's, uh, that's a hard one to swing right then, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went back-to-back years. I went 2013... When Mississippi State played in the championship series against UCLA, uh, drove uh, that time. By the way, if the opportunity presents itself to fly versus drive, I would encourage that. Um, It's a long drive, and it's an even longer drive home. Uh, Obviously, after a really good run in the College World Series, Mississippi State lost two in a row to UCLA. UCLA won the, uh, the national title. I turned around and went in 2014. I was there for Ole Miss's first two games. Uh, They lost to Virginia and then turned around and beat uh, Texas Tech, I think it was, in uh, in Game 2. So those were the the two games that I saw. And, you know, it was a really cool experience both times. I had always said that I was not going to go to the College World Series until Ole Miss was there. And then job conditions kind of changed that. I mean hosting a statewide sports talk show, and one of the teams from the state of Mississippi was there playing for a national title, so it made a bunch of of sense to be there. But it was kind of cool to take the College World Series in without a vested interest, just kind of getting to soak it up. And while I was there, I went to Old Rosenblatt, uh, which is now like a wiffle ball field. Um, But you can still see, I think it's home plate that they uh, they left in place. Uh, So there's some history there and it was an incredible environment. Just a gazillion Mississippi State fans were there. I remember bumping into a a farmer from the Delta who was in the elevator who had been to Omaha, watched Mississippi State play a couple of games, had gone back home uh, because there was work to do on the farm, and then had turned around and driven back once again for the championship series. And you'll have a lot of people that, that make that kind of an effort this go around as well if Mississippi State gets deep into the tournament. Altogether different experience two years later. Got to fly that time instead of driving, and it's a really neat deal when the team that you follow is there. Only eight teams still playing college baseball, and just a great environment. I mean, it. and, and the thing is, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about this. To me, college baseball is about getting to the College World Series, Now, if you get to the championship series and you're so close to winning it all, then I know there's a great deal of disappointment that goes along with it. But maybe even less... I I don't know. Maybe basketball is kind of like this as well. um, Where it's about getting to the Final Four. I mean, winning, winning a national championship is what everybody wants to do, but it's about getting there. Does it feel like that's the case... With the College World Series, it's about getting to Omaha even more so than it is about winning it all.
1: When you were setting that up, I I thought exactly what you ended up saying about the Final Four is, I mean, yeah, you want to win a national title, but everybody talks about Final Four appearances. That team went to the Final Four in that year, or this coach has this many Final Fours. Well, did they go to the title game or not? That's just never brought up. Very similar with Omaha. It feels like once you get there, anything that happens while you're there it's just additional icing on top of an already pretty good cake.
3: I would say in most cases both y'all are right, but there it seems like there's always a team or two every year where that's not the case. Like I feel like with Arkansas this year, like they're probably going there to win the whole thing, given what happened last year. Yeah. Um. So like whatever happens there, I wouldn't necessarily call that gravy. Um.
2: Although getting back with a team that's so drastically different than what they had a year ago is pretty impressive for Arkansas. Yeah, I'm I mean, not saying lost...
3: like the season's a failure, but I don't think they would like I don't think people amongst that program and fan base would view it as gravy. Same with Vanderbilt because they're Vanderbilt. I like, I think there's some exceptions. In
2: Florida State, I mean, maybe this year it just feels like getting there was a, a huge accomplishment, but because Florida State has been to the College World Series so many times and is carrying the, the bugaboo of never having won a national championship under Mike Martin, may, maybe it's different for them. In some ways, maybe it's different for Mississippi State. Uh, for Mississippi State, we, we've talked a little about the fact that Mississippi State has everything in college baseball except for a national championship. Um, agree or disagree? Shoot us a text 601 879 4395 on the, uh, the C Spire text line. Uh, Message comes in here. He goes, you mean you weren't pulling for state, Richard? LOL, no vested interest, (coughs) ha-ha. I I don't know how that came across. It's not what my intention was. Obviously, I don't have a diploma from Mississippi State, and I didn't grow up a Mississippi State fan. So I was not going to the College World Series cowbell in hand. Oh, my gosh, I can't wait, wait, wait to watch them win. My point was... When you go to watch the team that you grew up cheering for or the team that is the place where you've got a diploma from, it feels differently when you're just there as a college baseball fan and somebody that covers the game and just kind of soaking it all in. That's all I meant by
3: that. Is it gravy for state, though? Like, well, I mean, like they're good enough to win the whole thing. Like, I don't feel like they their fan base review it is just like anything after that is gravy. Like the season's obviously not a failure by any stretch, but like they're certainly one of the two, three teams you look at and you're like, okay, they could realistically win this. Yeah. Season.
1: No, I
2: agree with that. But w- tell me this. Would it be disappointing if you're a Mississippi State fan?
3: Last year, definitely will, gravy.
2: Will you be disappointed if Mississippi State goes two and two or three and two in the college world series? Let's say they beat Auburn and then lose to either Vanderbilt or Louisville, and then they turn around and win an elimination game, maybe win one more elimination game, and then lose out on getting to the championship series.
1: Go 3-2. and two. Man, that answer should be no, right? I mean, I guess we'll get some yeses, but that, that answer should be no. Oh, it, it's a first-year head coach. All things considered, it's a first-year head coach. They picked to finish, what, sixth in the West? Yeah. And now you've got your freshman pitcher with some fatigue issues? Just where they are right now, uh, national championship or bust, especially in a tournament setting like this, in a sport like baseball, should never be a thing.
2: Cody disagrees. He says, as a hardcore state, uh, hardcore state baseball fan, it's natty or bust. This I is the best that. overall team. Well, he gives a reason though. He says it's the best overall team since 1985 outside the 2016 team that did not make it to Omaha. Uh, it's Jake's last year. He deserves to win. I'll be disappointed if they don't. Uh, agree. Feel like it is state's chance to win it all. Bard and Columbus says yes, but we will be back next year. Phillips says, I think in reference to your thinking, I agree, but if Mississippi State seniors don't take it all this year, they will feel a sense of failure. Mangum continues to speak of unfinished business, as does McNamee. Well, that's what competitors
1: do, though. I mean, every player there wants to win the thing, and they think that they haven't accomplished their entire goal. They're in Omaha. They want to win the thing, and they expect to. That it just This national championship robust thing is crazy.
2: Spence and Wesson, a little more down the middle, he said, in Mississippi State's locker room, they have an Omaha room. As a diehard State fan, I will never be disappointed in a season with a trip to Omaha, win or lose. It's fair enough. And, and the idea of, we'll ask the players what they want. I mean, of course they want to win it all. And they're going to tell you that that's what they're there for. I just think winning the actual national championship in baseball is a little bit of a crapshoot. You run into a pitcher who's throwing his best. You have a day where offensively you're not quite as good. You have a day where the wind is blowing in and you have two balls that normally would be 30 feet over the fence that fall on the warning track. Kind of feel like you got robbed. Those are just kind of the breaks of being in the College World Series. Now, I certainly would understand if you said, look, If Mississippi State goes out there and goes 0-2, I'm pretty disappointed with the way it all shakes out. I get that. Here's one more message. Yes, want championship series at the least. It's the most complete team, in my opinion. So a lot of big expectations for Mississippi State fans, as there should be, with this team headed to the College World Series. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Braves are on a little bit of a heater right now seven in a row ten of the last 12 on top of the National League East a game up in the loss column on the Phillies they are five up on the Mets in the loss column to talk a little Atlanta Braves baseball right now on the Farm Bureau phone line Ben Ingram joins us from the Atlanta Braves radio network Ben what's up my man
0: hey Richard how's it going man good to hear from you
2: so, some pretty good baseball happening uh, in the ATL right now. Let's talk big picture, and then we'll kind of maybe go a little bit more micro. Seems like there's a lot of excitement surrounding this club.
0: Yeah, lots of lots uh, of excitement. I think for a couple of reasons. Obviously, they're winning right now. So they've won seven in a row, and that creates a lot of excitement. But doing it with young players and seeing a 21-year-old in Austin Riley and a 21-year-old in Ronald Acuna and seeing Ozzy Albies and Mike Soroka, I mean, Uh, They're getting it done with guys who are 25 years or younger, and that's really amazing. And uh, it's the way that the game is going. It's a young man's game now more than ever, so tons of excitement for a team putting up lots of runs and and playing really well.
2: On a more micro level, people excited about the addition of Dallas Keuchel that bolsters the rotation, but there, it feels like, is still a need to add some help to the bullpen. Do you anticipate that that's coming, or is the group that they've got now kind of the group they're going to ride with?
0: Well, if this is all that they do, I'll be I'll be surprised. I don't think everybody will be surprised. I think they have a lot more work to do. I mean, it's a good ball club right now. It's a team that I think has has what it takes to contend for the division. But just because you win a division doesn't mean that you're going to go ahead and go to the World Series. The Braves were pretty much overmatched last year once they got to the postseason, taking on the Dodgers, It's a much deeper lineup, much better arms in the rotation and the bullpen, and they'd like to add. So this this addresses one of the big needs, and they needed another starter arm. And to this point, Dallas Keuchel uh, has had one one appearance in the minor leagues that was at Rome, and it's against A-ball players, but he was still pretty good. So he'll be in Mississippi Saturday and starting there, and then we'll see where he is and then go from there, see if he can come up to Atlanta or make one more minor league start. But that's a really big step, but it's not the only step. I would contend that they still need to add to the rotation. They certainly need to add to the bullpen. The biggest deal around would be, uh, with the Giants, uh, I think would be for Madison Bumgarner and Will Smith. Those are two very coveted names: uh, a, a reliever and a starter. And that would both uh, both those guys would go a long way. But I still think they have lots of moves to make. And the good news is there's plenty of time. We still have over a month and a half till the trade deadline. But they'd like to make at least one more move, maybe even two, perhaps even three, depending on what you're looking to gain. But they want to add to the to the rotation and to the bullpen.
2: Ben, you mentioned. Albies and Acuna and obviously the emergence of Austin Riley. Not that Dansby Swanson's an old man, but it feels like Atlanta was kind of looking for a little bit more from him. Is the consistency offensively there now? Hitting close to 270, pretty decent power numbers on base, maybe not as high as you'd like to see. But is he giving the Braves what they need from him?
0: I'd say yes, and, and I didn't expect to be saying yes for Dansby. I think coming into the season, I thought it was a make-or-break year for him. And he has made some really good adjustments. I think his ability to go the opposite way is the biggest difference for him in his swing. He's, he's playing with a healthy wrist, and he did not have a healthy wrist all of the last year. When you're playing 162 games, you got to have your fingers and hands and wrists. they got to be 100%. And they, they've been that this year. He's worked a lot with Kevin Seitzer, and anybody can pull a fastball down the left field line and hit it out of the ballpark. That was his bread and butter the last few years. But anything away, especially off speed uh, or, or breaking balls away, he was not able to go the opposite way. Uh, this year not only has it been going the other way, he's been doing it with power. He had a home run to right field early on in the season, and after the ball game, he told the media scrum that that's the first opposite field home run he's ever hit at any level. That's counting high really? He'd never done it even uh, as an amateur. So he's been able to to make that part of his game, and I think what he's done offensively uh, is is a lot more along the lines of what you're looking for. Since he's gone up to the two-hole in the order, which happened about 30 games ago, uh, the team's won 21 of those 30 games, counting the win today. He was on base a lot today. He was on base, I believe, four times today. Had a couple of walks, base hit, hit by a pitch, and he's been able to thrive. And while his numbers for the whole year are trending in the right direction, I'd look at what he's done for the last 30 days. And to me, that's where he's the most impressive. Uh, looking at his last 30 ball games, to me, that's where the biggest changes come because batting second, he's getting a lot more fastballs. He's hitting right in between Acuna and Freeman. Uh, and his ability to go the opposite way and move runners over has been a big part of that as well. So I love that he's getting on base, and I think he's starting to resemble what you hoped he would be when the Diamondbacks took him number one overall in 2015. And defensively, he's been good today, too. He made a really nice defensive play late in the ballgame today where he had a hand, do-or-die play. Uh, it was a big play in, in the 8th uh, or ninth inning, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, altogether, his, his game has gotten significantly better.
2: Ben Ingram on your radio, Atlanta Braves Radio Network. pregame, game post-game, sometimes play-by-play, and an editorial comment here, by the way, not uh, my, my words, not his, sooner rather than later will be the full-time radio play-by-play guy for the Braves. Just a, a fantastic listen on the air. Uh, ben, I'm I'm, I'm curious... Freddie Freeman, okay, leads the team in in average and home runs and ribbies and on-base and hits, and he's got a great OPS. But I don't feel like Freddie Freeman gets the national recognition that he should get. Now, I know that baseball is more of a regional game, and certainly he gets all the recognition that that he deserves from Braves fans. But what about nationally? Excuse me, just given what he's done consistently over the last handful of years... Is he undervalued by people that follow the game but don't just zero in on the Braves?
0: Probably so. I think people are are slowly hearing more and more about Freddie Freeman, and you get a chance to see him in the All-Star game a handful of times. I think he'll be an All-Star this year. He's currently third in the All-Star balloting in the National League behind Josh Bell and Anthony Rizzo. Uh, But he does not have any postseason success. I think that's a big miss. And that's not on his shoulders squarely. I think that's obviously because of the team and so many bad teams that he was on from 2015 to 2017. But for those guys to hit that next level, coast to coast, and that that kind of a household name, I think you need postseason success. People need to be able to watch you. And it's one of the biggest complaints that I have about Mike Trout or or Felix Hernandez or one of these guys who plays on the West Coast and hasn't had a whole lot of postseason experience. We hear their names. We might know that their numbers are good, but you don't get an opportunity to see them regularly. I would say that that's definitely the case for Freddie Freeman because for, for the last five years, he's only been on a contender last season and this year, uh, yeah. and there hasn't been that that spotlight in the postseason. I think people view him the same way maybe that they viewed Paul Goldschmidt when he was in Arizona. We, we know, <laughs> all know that that's a good name. We know that that's a, a, a very talented ballplayer guy putting up big-time numbers but he doesn't often enter the conversation for best in the league, simply because you don't see him a ton. I think he's slowly gaining traction there, and his numbers year in, year out have been so consistent. Uh, and just watching this guy every single day, it's not just with the bat. To me, he's the best defensive first baseman in the league. Uh, he has, he's saved so many plays and so many runs over there at first base, and I think we take it for granted to a degree. But he's just a solid every single day player and such a good hitter, powered all fields, and he's, he's so simple when he talks his approach, I, I've sat down with him many times and thinking I'm about to get this big, brilliant breakdown of, of how to be a good hitter in the big leagues. And it's really <laughs> just as simple as I see the ball, I hit the ball. I get my foot down, I get the bat through the zone. I'm trying to hit line drives towards the shortstop because that's how he stays back. He doesn't watch any film at all. I've asked him, could we watch a film session together? Really? Like, I never, the next film session I have will be my first. So he makes it so simple, and Richard, the game is not that easy, Uh, but he makes it sound like it is that easy, and and he's a throwback to that in in that regard. So I I know that we have a lot of flair with young guys like Riley and Acuna and Albies and uh, league-wide. I mean, we're talking about guys doing bat flips and doing big things with, with numbers, but It's easy to overlook the consistent everyday guy who goes two for five, and it's three ten, and that's exactly who he is. Power numbers there more so this year than they have been in a while. He's got more home runs in the first half now than he ever has in any previous year, and that's probably going to help put him on the map a little bit more as well. But it's a treat to watch him every day at the plate and in the field.
2: Ben, only about a minute left. How old are you?
0: I'm 39.
2: Okay, you're 39, so you and I are about the same age. I'm 38. I'll be 39 in November The reason I ask, I vividly remember early 90s when the Braves first made the worst-to-first run. The buzz around Atlanta, around the ballpark, around that team was just off the charts. Are we approaching that in the stretch run this year? I know we're not to the halfway point yet, but, but can you see that kind of a buzz building around this team?
0: I could, and I think it's because of what they did last year. People already know that this team is a contender because they won the division last year. Now the next question is how much further can you take that? And it's not just who you bring in. I think you have to bring in the right guys, and I plan on I plan on being able to talk about that because I do think they'll bring in the right guys at the trade deadline. But it's another year of growth for your young guys who are 21, 22, and 23 years old. I can't even tell you about the buzz that these young guys have created, especially Acuna and Riley. And just like they did in 93, they added the right piece with Fred McGriff, and that was the piece that helped them take off. This year, I'd expect that piece to come in, in way of a pitcher, but I expect that move to take place, and I think that would further that buzz that you're talking about, and hopefully more than just a, a team that's good enough to make the postseason, hopefully a team that can win once they get to October.
2: Ben, you're always generous with your time. Really appreciate the, uh, the insight this afternoon. Look forward to talking to you soon.
0: Anytime, Richard. Thanks so much for having me.
2: That is Ben Ingram. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Thursday afternoon, glad to have you along for the ride. Show's brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. If you've got land financing needs of any kind, check them out online at mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. College Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com and find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford tough. Ryan Brown joins us on the Farm Bureau phone line. Ryan is co-host of the Roundtable on Jocks in Birmingham.
0: Ryan, what's up, man? Richard, I'm good. How are you today?
2: We're inside 80 days now to the, uh, the start of the college football season. It's kind of moving along quickly, huh?
4: It really is. You know, I find this happens every year. It's like, you know, we get into spring and we start thinking, oh, gosh, summer will take forever for football to get here. And I always talk about on our show, um there are like these almost like when you go down the um, interstate and you pass mile markers. There are just these little you know, these little landmarks, these little mile posts that as you pass you realize, hey, I'm just a little bit closer, I'm a little bit closer, and before you know it it's here and I hey, I don't know. It seems like it used to take forever to football for football to get back around and now it just seems like it gets back around quicker. I know it's the same amount of days, maybe it's more stuff I'm paying attention to now, I don't know but it it seems like it gets here quicker every single
2: year. I mean, I guess I always heard as you get older, the days go by faster, so maybe that's uh, that's That's where we are. That's
4: true, I guess,
2: yeah. Um, And, you know, the crazy thing is we always kind of look at the SEC baseball tournament. That's usually where 100 days till kickoff falls for, like, that first big Saturday, and we kind of start a countdown to the start of the season. But with baseball teams in Mississippi generally going deep, a couple of weeks, maybe a month into the postseason – and then media days is here, and then it's just like a sprint to the finish line, which is what know. most people want.
4: I know. And now media days is earlier than normal uh, or has been of late. You know, used to, you would get media days, and, and a lot of teams would start camp right after that. you got teams to camp, you know, early August because media days is late July. Yeah. Now you don't necessarily get the camps right away. I guess Florida will because they play that week zero, so they'll, they'll start a little quicker than most. So, you know, maybe we'll start getting camps open you know sooner than that but yeah with you you know i I think that's probably it as media days happens a little earlier now so it gets here a little bit quicker and by the time it gets here i think most of the fans in our state at least think it's football season already once once the guys roll into hoover or you know wherever media days ends up in the future they they think it's football season at that point
2: yeah Uh, let's talk quarterbacks in the sec we we kind of spent some time this week looking at the quarterback picture nationally orky raised the question yesterday whether or not we had a quarterback issue like a lack of stars at quarterback. So when you look around the SEC, obviously Tua Tagovailoa proven at Alabama, Kellen Mond took a big step last year at A&M, thought Felipe Franks took a huge step forward, Jake Bentley's a known quantity at South Carolina, but you got a bunch of places that have got question marks at that position. When you look at the quarterback position as a whole, let, let's start there. Is this a good year or just kind of an average year in the SEC for quarterbacks?
4: Um, that's a good question. I think you got two guys that could be elite in front of a little bit of calm. I, I yeah, think I didn't mention
2: Jake Fromm. A, a yeah, good point.
4: yeah. And I think the interesting thing with him, Richard, is, you know, how does, how does he get coached now that Jim Chaney is going? I thought a lot of times Jim Chaney kind of handcuffed him and turned him into a game manager. I think he's a better quarterback than that. And, you know, I don't, I don't watch him in person every week out of NFL, on TV all the time. But the times I've watched him in person were um, the, the only time he's really been bad was at Auburn uh, back in 2017. I've, I've seen him twice against Alabama in a national championship game and an SEC championship game make NFL throw after NFL throw until Georgia kind of went into game management mode and tried to burn clock in both those games. And then in an SEC championship game against Auburn, um, his numbers weren't entirely different from what his numbers were down on the plains against Auburn at the interception. But he just played so much better and made better decisions and just looked more in control. So every time I see Fromm, he plays really well. I think you know it'll be interesting to see how much they let him play this year and don't just depend on that dominant run game that that, that they've always got. So I think Tua and Fromm can be – elite and it would be interesting to see who the next guy to join that group is because I think you mentioned Felipe Franks the back half of the season when Florida played their best football he played more like a Dan he was good. quarterback yeah he played more like a Dan Mullen quarterback that's what I look at you may not look at his numbers and think oh god they were amazing but you just wish what he did and it looked like he was fitting into what we've seen yeah, I'm not comparing him to these guys I'm just saying it fit more into what we've seen uh, Tim Tebow do under Mullen, and Dak Prescott do under Mullen, and Nick Fitzgerald do under Mullen, and and then mine is the guy I think everybody thinks will take the biggest step or because I think people trust the way Jimbo Fisher coaches quarterbacks.
2: Do you believe at all in Terry Wilson at Kentucky?
4: Um, not really. I, you
2: no. didn't expect me to ask that today, I bet.
4: No, I did not. I didn't. I didn't bone up on my Terry Wilson numbers. I, I just, you know. They, they were so offensively challenged last year. Their defense came
2: they really in
4: time and time and time again. And then it finally, you know, they got in that Georgia game where remarkably, and this is a credit to Mark Stoops, you know, they had a one game to win the East. And there they are. They can't do anything offensively. Georgia has them completely shut down. So, I, no, I don't. I, I mean, I think Benny Snell was their offense last year, and they are just so offensively challenged. Um, I, I, I'm just not a big believer in Terry Wilson, and now he's got to do it without Benny Snell.
2: Yeah, um, Jake Bentley's an interesting one to me at South Carolina, and I feel like we kind of know what we're going to get with him. A-, a guy that I'm really intrigued to see is Bo Nix. Is Bo Nix going to be the starter on the Plains?
4: You know, I think so. I think he'll end up winning that starting job. though, Joy Gatewood had a really good spring, and um, you know Gus Malzahn has said it's a two man race. He and I think this is wise. not that you know Gus Malzahn doesn't know what he's doing with quarterbacks, but. I think it's wise to go ahead and get that down to two guys because somebody, whether it was either one of those guys or Malik Willis, somebody's making their first start. And Malik Willis had played very little significant snaps. So even if it were him, who who was kind of the heir apparent, I mean, he was the backup. Even if it were him, I mean, he's a first-time starter. So whoever you rolled out there was going to be a guy that was kind of thrown to the wolves a little bit against that Oregon defense. So I, you know, I think it may only made sense to narrow that down to two guys. So you got a better chance of getting one of them ready. Um, I would, I would pick Auburn to win that game. If you told me, you don't even have to tell me who it is, but if you told me one quarterback took every snap in that game for Auburn, I'd pick against Auburn. Oregon. Yeah, against Oregon. But my fear is, and Gus Malzahn has done this before. and We'll see if he's learned from his mistakes. Is he's led a quarterback battle go into week one and play two guys. And the last time he did it, it was against Clemson at home, where he played, he rotated like three guys. And it was just a terrible rotation. It probably cost him the game. So, yeah, to me, the most interesting for Auburn, no matter whether it's Knicks or Gatewood, is that one of them wins the job. they going into that game against Oregon. They were the clear-cut starter. And Gus Malzahn isn't trying to rotate quarterbacks just to see which one has the high hand. Because I'm not sure you could do that against Oregon and win the game.
2: Yeah, especially with a guy like Justin Herbert coming back. There's no question who's going to be the quarterback at at Oregon. So so, so Auburn, I think, is going to be pretty good defensively. There are question marks, I think, to some degree on the offensive side of the ball, though they should be better at receiver than they were a year ago just because they get some guys back and and that should be healthy. Is this the Gus Malzahn has his back against the wall and look out, here comes Auburn, or is this the year where... Yeah, they win seven or eight, and that's probably enough to end the Gus era on the play. Well,
4: yeah, I think with that schedule, um, I, I think more people are thinking the seven to eight win type deal, and maybe you've got because Gabe was a redshirt freshman and Mix is a true freshman. So with either one, you you would you know if you can at least get good quarterback play, especially in the back half of the season, you would feel like all right, there, there's a lot to be excited about, you know, going into the the next season um you're right defensively they're going to be really really good especially on that defensive front i mean all those guys are back there's some nfl guys on the defensive front um some high picks including Derek brown who, who looks like he might be the highest pick of that bunch yeah the, the thing that worries you on offense is they really only had one three down running back last, last year and that was booby whitlow and he got injured and auburn
3: really their run
4: game suffered from that so, they've got to have someone else step into that role that can be a three down back, can be an SEC three down back, and not just some specialty jet sweep type back, you know, that, that what the rest of that running back core was like. So, they really have got to develop another running back very, very quickly to take some of that load off Booby Whitlow to help that quarterback, to help a young quarterback. I mean, it's having a good run game is going to help either one of those guys kind of ease into the job. Uh, they need somebody to help booby whitlow in that backfield so that they can have that type of run game early on against oregon in that september schedule they play
2: not not fair to ask this with just 30 seconds left but can gus survive an eight and four season that includes a loss to georgia and a loss to alabama and maybe uh, that, a loss that, to that, oregon
4: well that was the key is you if you've lost to georgia and alabama it's going to make it all difficult because that'll be a lot of losses to those two teams your biggest rivals but like I yeah. said, I think if he can excite people with quarterback play late, it would help him in that type of scenario.
2: It's an interesting take on it. Look forward to visiting with you more as we get closer to the start of the uh, the football season. Thanks, Ryan. Enjoy uh, the U.S. Open in the weekend.
4: All right, boys. Y'all be good.
2: And that's Ryan Brown from the uh, Jocks Roundtable, co-host there. Great show on Jocks in Birmingham. Ryan on the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team.
1: on motion from your boy Justin Rose on the golf course. Hey! He just slammed his wedge down in the sand. He is human after all. And not a British robot. Just... Not looking for great, uh, great for
2: uh, Tiger Woods on the par 3 fifth. Yanked his, uh, his tee shot left. Bounced it off the cart path over behind the grandstands. Chipped it across the green. Then just chipped it back about 10 feet past the hole so he's got a uh, he's got a tester for bogey Brooks Kepka is a uh, robot in, in like the most complimentary way possible he's just crushing it he, he, he's missing no shots three under on his round but right now the story is Victor Hovland he's the reigning U.S amateur champ, and is currently four under through six. And he missed an eagle putt by about three inches on number six to go into a tie for the lead. That is it's uh, pretty strong work. Ricky Fowler still sitting in the clubhouse along with Xander Shoffley and Louis Oosthuizen at five under par. Scott Piercy, for now, by himself. Oh, no, he's not. He is four under par, now tied with Brooks Kepka. And soon to be tied with Victor Hoagland as well. So you're about to have three guys at four under par. Can I just go on the record as saying I love the U.S. Open being on the West Coast?
1: Primetime golf, man. It's hard to beat it. Isn't it fantastic? I mean, you got
2: guys that went off at two o'clock local time, so it's four o'clock our time, five o'clock on the East Coast, that are on the fifth hole right now. We got Three hours, four hours of golf left, and then as soon as it's over, they'll turn around and play a replay of it. You get golf until like eleven o'clock at night.
1: Yeah, Fox is the standard bearer for how you cover a golf tournament. Everybody should do it Ooh. this exact way.
3: That, oh, well, what are we talking about here? How? Take-y, no, no, wait. What are we talking about here, though? How do you do it, or the coverage team?
1: How? How you do it? I couldn't care less about the coverage team. The fact that they have hours upon hours upon hours and they show a diversity of shots. Uh, That's all it is. It's shot, 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 shot. Very little commercials, if any at all. That's how you cover a golf tournament.
3: What do you mean you couldn't care less about the team? You want Johnny Miller in on this?
1: Oh, I can't stand him, but the announcer teams have never done anything for me one way or the other. I don't watch a game because somebody's calling it and I don't, Like Watch it on mute. Even though I think 90% of the people that say, I had to mute the TV because the announcers were so bad are full of it, and they don't actually do that. They just want to say that they do that. It doesn't affect me one way or the other. I I notice good versus bad, but it doesn't deter me from enjoying the game, if that makes sense.
3: I'd actually generally tend to agree with that, particularly with games. I think golf is a little different because they're with you for so long, but uh, Johnny Miller really bothered me. (laughs) <laughs> really bugged me. Yeah,
1: he was the worst. But,
3: um, and then there's some color guys that bother me. Who? Um, shoot, now I say that and I can't think any off the top of my head. But like, if it comes across, like I'll be like, that's that guy's not very good. Um, honestly, I wasn't bothered by Jason Witten as much as most people were. He wasn't very good, but I wasn't really bothered with. Oh, it. you're talking about you switched off of golf. You just mean in general. Oh yeah, just in a sports broadcast in general. Oh, but like golf's different cuz you have a lot of color guys. I guess was kind of my point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh
2: so Joe Buck like kicked off the coverage. Uh, they came on 11:30 on FS1 today and he kicked off the coverage was there for like half an hour and then he just bailed. So they've got Shane Bacon kind of running the coverage until um they go back to Big Fox tonight. So
3: Joe can't be bothered to be much on FS1 very much. I've heard Joel Klatt's been pretty good. Joel Klatt's been really good. I had it on mute earlier.
2: He's interviewing players and doing a little bit of analysis. And Yeah, Joel Klatt's a football guy, but he is a really good golfer as well. And I think there's something to be said for like, a broadcaster. Uh, Tim Brando, with... I don't know. I don't always agree with what Tim Brando has to say, but he was kind of propping up Joel Klatt earlier today. He said, having a TV broadcaster, even if he's a football guy... There's something to be, to be said that, as opposed to just a former player or some swing coach guru sticking them there because that's their expertise. You get a broadcaster; they kind of know what questions to ask and when and how to ask them.
3: Or you could talk about yourself the entire time, like Mr. Miller. <laughs> I thought that was a Tim Brando reference. <laughs> no, <laughs> jeez, no, no I, no, I thought that I well. thought that's what you were saying. Where would you? Why, why would you assume I was going Tim Brando? Because I had just mentioned Tim Brando,
2: and you went with that. Oh. Say said that was his take. Uh, So anyway, uh, Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Glad to have you along on this Thursday afternoon. You can text the show, 601-879-4395. Uncle Vern on CBS was the worst. If it wasn't praising Bama, he was horrible.
3: How can you say Uncle Vern is the worst, though? If anything, it was his partner that wasn't very Yeah,
2: I was not a big Gary Danielson fan. And I will grant you that later in his career... Vern lost a little velocity on his fastball, but it still felt like a big event when there's, Vern was behind the mic.
3: There's no hiding that either, right? Like, if a play-by-player or a radio guy loses his fastball, like, it's you're out in the open there. Like, there's no, you're like, right. You don't really mask that at all.
2: C-Ray says David Kellum is my favorite, even though I'm a state guy. He's really good. Just switch to uh, radio, college radio. That's fine. A couple of folks saying Eduardo Perez. Bad or good? I think they're putting him in the
1: bad category. So, Dick Vitale is bad to me.
3: So, that's one that I actually... I think Dick Vitale is a good guy. Like He does a lot of good things. But he uh, he actually does kind of bug me on broadcast. I like him in like... They don't do him in studio much anymore. but no. like Broadcast... Uh, he's all games. He kind of bugs me.
2: You know, the thing about Dick Vitale is... It's almost like he gets a little bit of a pass because of what he's done to elevate the sport of college basketball over the course of four decades. Um, from an analysis standpoint, there are a bunch of guys that are way better. With Dick Vitale, you get a lot of front running stuff. You get a lot of Mike Krzyzewski's the best. Oh my goodness. Rick Fatino. What a great. Yeah, that, that's fine. But it does usually feel like a big game when Dick Vitale's on the game.
3: You know, the complete, like, polar opposite of this that's, like, very polarizing. Bill Walton, I love him. Some hate him as a color guy. Really, I had a college roommate where, like, every Thursday night, if we weren't like doing anything, that was appointment viewing to watch him on the pack or listen to him on the Pac-12 thing. It didn't really matter who was playing; it was just so out there, it's so entertaining. You do have to kind of either love or hate Bill Walton. If
1: you don't games. have a rooting interest in the game, I-, I get it. But if, like, if I was a fan of one of the teams, he would drive me up a wall.
3: That's fair. But Pac-12 doesn't really have fans, so. Yeah. <laughs> You're good there. <laughs> c Spire Text Line blowing up. Bob Knight, good coach.
2: Horrible calling the games. You turned me on to Angry Announcer video. Did you
3: watch that? And I <laughs> that watched uh, I watched some of
2: them late last night. <laughs> and one was uh Bob Knight was doing a game at SMU. Yeah. And the, the announcer desk at SMU right on the sidelines, and they've got the high dollar seats. Well, apparently the people in the expensive seats were standing up and he couldn't see and so he starts yelling at the guy that's standing up while they're on the air. Like, "They Sit down! Sit down, son! Son, sit down! Look, if you want to swap seats with me, you can sit here and I'll sit there so I can see the game. But I need to be able to see the game. Come on, angry old man.
1: You've got to see him trying to film a golf special.
2: I've seen that. It's earmuffs. Uh, Tim and Ooh. McGee says Gary Danielson would marry Nick Saban. He loves him. I agree, Dick Vitale. Made college basketball. Diaper dandy.
3: I'll tell you who's really bad color-wise. Chris Weber.
2: Uh, Kyle Peterson and Ben McDonald, great at doing SEC baseball. I agree. Ben, I think Kyle Peterson is probably the most talented in his ability to kind of let a game breathe and kind of work his insights in. I think he's got a great feel for the game. But in terms of just pure analysis from a guy who did it at a really high level for a long time and is just as real as it gets, Ben McDonald, so much fun to work with. And I feel like he's able to say things that other people either can't say or won't say. So because Ben is self-professed just a redneck from louisiana he cares about baseball and his family and hunting and that's it maybe a little bit of fishing but ben has no other interests. he likes to hunt and be outside he likes his kids and his wife and being around them and he loves baseball pretty good stuff i tend to like how van gundy is brutally honest are he officiating When calling NBA games.
3: Ben Gundy's good. He Uh, caught me
1: taking a picture of him in Houston a few years ago. (laughs) That was one stare that I got, man.
2: Uh, TV has to be Ben McDonald and KP. That's from C. Ray. Dan says the best is John Cox, Southern Miss radio voice. Uh, I enjoy Joe Buck. Eduardo Perez doing college baseball is awful. State guy, I think you do a good job, Richard? Thanks. It's nice of you. Paul in Sarkville says, um, no, he's off on a different tangent. Thanks for reaching out, Paul. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. We are glad to have you along on this Thursday afternoon. Sports Talk Mississippi. It's funny you you mentioned announcers and it really strikes a chord with people. It's an interesting topic. Text message from a buddy of mine, Tom Hamilton. Cleveland Indians play by play. I think that's their TV play by play. Although maybe he does some radio. Said a true epitome of how to call a game. I said he's good, but that's a guy that gets really excited. He said, Yeah, he said, you can really tell though when a ball is stroked off the bat. They're a bunch of good big league announcers. As far as as far as local market television announcers for major league baseball. One hundred times out of one hundred, give me the San Francisco Giants. Kuiper and Kruko, Krucow, those guys are fantastic. They've had to deal with some pretty bad baseball the last couple of years.
3: Always like Dick Enberg on the Padres. Yeah, I know he was more known for other stuff, but he was kind of a soothing baseball guy. Yeah,
2: I mean, obviously, Vin Scully was in kind of a class of his own.
3: Joe Davis has been
2: really good as Vin Scully's replacement
3: with the Dodgers. Who's the ex-ESPN guy that does the Diamondbacks? He's pretty good. Steve Berthume. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Bob Brindley, this color guy. He used to do Cubs games. I would listen when I was a kid. Well, and, and the
2: Diamondbacks had like the, uh, like the crazy turnover a couple of years ago where they fired Mark Grace and they fired the TV guy also. I can't remember what his name was. Like a little internal power struggle of some sort.
3: That's always fun. Resulted in awful uniforms, too. You don't like the new uniforms? The dark gray. It looks ridiculous. Yeah, they're gross. It looks ridiculous. They're really gross.
2: Uh, Cody and Tupelo says the guy who does Florida football on the radio has to be the most annoying guy on radio. <laughs> oh, my. Mick Hubert. Good guy. James and Hattiesburg says the Nats guy. Washington Nationals. Who?
3: TV or radio?
2: Uh, it's Bob Carpenter that does their games on TV. He's the guy that made the scorebook that everybody that's kind of in television uses, or tons and tons of people use.
3: Uh, Walter in Houston says that Joe Buck is trash. Man, that, Joe Buck's like Nickelback. He's a cool one to hate on.
1: He's really good. Yeah, you cannot I like, like him. But you can't say he's bad. You know what I mean? There's a difference. Like, there are, I have a good buddy that hates the Tedeschi Trucks band. Very random. Can't stand them. They are. The who? The what? It's a. Music people would know who they are. Derek Trucks is one of the great guitar players in modern music, and his wife, Susan Tedeschi. They're incredible. Uh, They're about to start a tour actually coming here, which I'm really excited about. Really good band. Anyway, a buddy of mine hates them and thinks that they're actually bad musicians. And that's false. You cannot like their music and at least like appreciate that they're good. Kind of like Lordy, right? Like I don't her music's terrible, but you can tell that she's talented at singing. Joe Buck is very good at calling games on television. You cannot like him, but to say he's bad is just false.
2: Ian Poulter rolls in the birdie putt to get it to two under in his cool sculpting visor. My guy. borky I'm not I'm not dismissing anything you just said. I think uh I think you just used a really good analogy. I just had no idea who no, anybody okay. you were talking about was.
3: <laughs> that's okay. Uh, I thought you were about to go like European Screamo or something. Like, oh no, no. It's
1: it's good Southern Rock, man. Uh, it's um I saw them play here in Jackson and it was just blown away on the very last row of uh, the theater in downtown Jackson. Very last row. Was just blown away. They are uh, remarkable. But Derek Trucks, I mean, he's one of the best guitarists. Plays a slide guitar. He's incredible. And there uh you go. Anyway, worth checking out. Really good band.
3: All right. Borky with the music wrecks on this uh, Thursday afternoon. You want a list? Whoever that guy that sent us Jason Isbell yesterday I listened to, it, it was pretty good. Isbell's uh, good.
2: I can't believe you've never heard, heard of
3: him. No, no. Okay, so I, I was kind of... Partly being facetious I definitely heard of the guy But I legitimately never heard of any of his music And it was uh, It was pretty good I like listening to a couple of songs Who was that? Uh, Gib Ellis Yeah Thanks, Thanks Gib
2: man. Rippy appreciates the uh, the tip Barrett Salee at CBSSports.com Ranks the SEC coaches 1-14 through 14. Uh, I don't know if it's a good list or not uh, Let's see what you think Saban 1 Jimbo 2 Kirby, three. Mullen, four. Gus, five. Mm. See, Gus on the
1: fifth best coach in the SEC. If he's making the list. I think you could make an argument also for Mullen ahead of Kirby. I'm not saying it's true, but if somebody argued that, I wouldn't disagree. No, I
3: I agree with you. Based off what he's done, like what he did at State with what he's working with versus Kirby's sample size, I actually absolutely agree with that. Hold on a second. I'm, no, no, whoa, whoa,
2: Year one was rebuilding. Year two, they played for a national championship. And year three, they
1: played in the SEC title game. And the roster that Kirby had at Georgia versus what Dan Mullen had at Mississippi State.
3: Quite good. Yeah, He's built the roster, though. We're just saying there's an argument. Yeah, it's I'm
2: I'm not knocking Dan Mullen at all. I think
3: he's an incredible coach. If I'm making a list, it's still Kirby 3, but I'll listen to Mullen at 3. So Gus at 5, Ed Ogeron at
2: 6, which I actually don't have a problem with.
3: Not to back up, but I do have a question. Why is Jimbo just a clear-cut 2 over Kirby? Because he's won a national championship. But...
2: There are only 6 guys in college football that are head coaches that have won a national title. Fair enough.
3: Couldn't you put Ed over Gus at this point? Ed's done a way better job than people than people thought he would do. And like since particularly since Ed's gotten there, he's definitely been better than Gus, no?
2: Twenty five and nine in three seasons, including his time as an interim head coach most of the twenty sixteen season, three bowl wins. We'll see. Is Ed Ogeron gonna allow LSU to take the next step? They are recruiting at basically the same level that Alabama and Georgia are. Getting close. Will Muschamp at seven. At uh, Mark Stoops at eight. Would put Stoops over Muschamp. Joe Moorhead at nine. Posted an eight-win regular season, earned an outback Bowl bid in his first year, but the offense's strong point was erratic at best. With multiple stars gone off one of the nation's best defenses we will get a much better view of who Moorhead is as a coach after his second year in
3: Starkville. That's probably a very accurate sentence.
1: Yeah, that's fair. Uh, ahead of Odom, though, I'm interested by. Because if you gave Barry Odom the number 1 defense in college football, uh, wouldn't he go 8-5 and five as well? Doesn't this get into the
3: whole, like, Moorhead's an offensive guy but got handed a very unique quarterback situation?
1: Yeah. I mean, it... We'll see well, I what's think on these two
3: and three for Joe Moorhead are, are wildly interesting. It's kind of where the rubber meets the road, to use a very old cliche. Like, you cut, are they going to score points or not?
2: Barry Odom at 10, Jeremy Pruitt at 11. Jeremy Pruitt 5-7 and seven in his first season as a head coach. One of those conference wins was on the road against Auburn. The other one was against the best Kentucky team in a few generations. That gave Vol Nation hope there's more to come and shows that the speed bumps he faced in year one are only temporary. We'll see.
3: His isn't necessarily fair yet, is it? Probably not. Same with Morris.
2: Uh, Derek Mason, 12 at Vanderbilt. I think you could make an argument for Derek Mason to be a little bit higher on the list given what he's pulled off at the most difficult place in the SEC and one of the four or five most difficult jobs in the country. I'm not sure that I buy into what he writes about Matt Luke at 13. If you want to say Matt Luke deserves to be 13, okay. I'm just not sure that the write up to go along with it is a good way to look at it. Matt Luke went from six and six to five and seven and three conference wins to just one during his first two years. Now that his superstar receivers have moved on and Matt Corral is taking over under center, we'll get a glimpse of what this Ole Miss program actually looks like under Luke.
3: What's inaccurate about that?
2: Well, if six and six to five and seven is your justification for having him at 13, you're not really taking into account everything else that was going on.
3: I just read that as odd. I, I I could be wrong, but I just read that as him stating what happened the first two years as, for, as opposed sure. to him setting up a point.
1: Maybe so.
2: Arkansas at 14. Chad Morris took over an Arkansas program that cratered under Brett Bielema and promptly went 2-10 and 10 and 0-8 and in the SEC. You have to have at least one conference win under your belt in order to be in consideration to be somewhere other than the seller in the SEC. How much patience
3: are Arkansas fans going to have this year with Chad Morris in year two? You still have to have a lot. This was a four-year thing, was it not? I it know. Feels the, like it was. I know. Like the days fans of, are
1: very irrational, though.
3: And the like. Remember, like, uh, what? Fifteen years ago, it used to be if you hired a head coach, you got four years, no matter what, right? That's not really a thing anymore. But like with that, that feels like that has to be the case when
2: you're making the style change that Arkansas is attempting to make. And there was a lot made of Arkansas's recruiting a year ago. Problem is, they didn't finish as strong as they started, which most teams don't. I mean, most teams that are not blue blood programs named Alabama, LSU, Georgia, Clemson, etc., are not, if they're top 10 in the recruiting rankings, maybe going into the football season, they're probably not going to maintain that status because those blue blood programs are going to get the guys that they want, and all of a sudden their classes rocket to the top. Arkansas ended up finishing behind Ole Miss and Mississippi State, though, in recruiting last year. Sports Talk Mississippi, Renaissance Bank Studio. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.